Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you could submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. Tonight, you'll hear a conversation about screening for dense breasts with Dr. Regina Hooley. Dr. Hooley is Associate Professor of Diagnostic Radiology at the Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Anish Chagpar. So, Regina, let's start by talking about what exactly do we mean when we say dense breasts? Well, dense breast tissue is determined by the way the breasts look on the mammogram. It's not really determined by how the breasts feel on physical examination. All women have their own unique uh, mix of fatty and glandular tissue. And on the mammogram, the glandular tissue looks white and the fatty tissue looks gray or blackish. And so we're always looking for small cancers, which are white spots. So in women with uh, dense and white breasts, it makes the cancers harder to see. Um, if there are more, if most of the breast is made up of glandular dense tissue, we call them dense breasts. If the breasts are predominantly made up of fatty tissue, we call them non-dense. And so is a person's breast density kind of genetically predetermined at birth that if they have dense breasts, they will always have dense breasts? Or is this something that fluctuates with the hormonal milieu? Dense breasts can change over time. Uh, we do notice that uh, it tends to run, dense breast does tend to run in families, uh, but we don't know for sure if there is a true genetic link. There are uh, factors in life which can change breast density. Uh, women, when they are pregnant, have uh, more dense breasts. Uh, their, their breast, their glandular tissue proliferates and grows. Um, over time, women tend to have less dense breasts and more fatty replacement of their tissue. So uh, dense breast tissue uh, is not as uh, frequent in women in the postmenopausal years. But overall, dense breast tissue is really a normal finding, and about 50% of all women in the United States have dense breast tissue. So how do you know if you have dense breasts? Because if I understand you right, dense breasts make reading a mammogram, finding those cancers which look white on a mammogram of dense breast tissue, which also looks white, more difficult. So how does a woman know whether her breasts are dense or not? Well, she will know um, when she uh, has her mammogram. Here in, here in Connecticut, we have a breast density notification law where we must inform women um, if they have dense breasts. In our practice at Yale, we also tell women if they don't have dense breasts, so they, 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 don't, have, they, they don't have to wonder whether or not they were told. So once a woman is told that they have dense breasts, we also um, are obligated to tell them that they could benefit from additional screening for breast cancer with ultrasound and or MRI based on their risk factors, and that is uh, due to the breast 
breast density notification law that was passed here in our state back in 2009. So tell us more about how ultrasound and or MRI would help in those patients. And how do you decide whether you should get an ultrasound or you should get an MRI? Clearly, there's a cost differential there, too. Sure. Well, we think that all women um, after the age of 40 should have a screening mammogram. And if a woman has dense breast tissue and she's of average risk, she has the option of having an extra test in addition to the mammogram, and that would be the ultrasound. Ultrasound works uh, particularly well in women with dense breast tissue because the way the ultrasound technology works is that the uh, cancers tend to be dark on ultrasound and the glandular tissue tends to be more white on ultrasound and so we have that contrast to detect these small cancers. There have been numerous studies that have shown that uh, with ultrasound we can detect an additional three cancers per thousand women screened. Now you might say, well three three per thousand is not very high, but keep in mind that with uh, screening mammography we're um, detecting about five cancers per thousand uh, women screened, and that's, that's accepted as uh, um, being beneficial. So, so ultrasound um, may be useful for women who have dense breasts because you can now see, see this contrast. Um, tell us about MRI. When should patients have an MRI? Breast MRI is useful in women who are at very high risk for breast cancer. MRI is probably the best test we have to detect uh, breast cancer. It's very sensitive. The only problem with breast MRI is that it's very costly compared to a mammogram, and it also requires an injection of intravenous contrast. So it's a little bit more invasive uh, of a screening test. Nevertheless, women who are at very high risk, more than a 20% lifetime risk, uh, can benefit, and we do recommend that they have screening MRI in addition to their mammogram. But if a patient does have MRI, then she does not need the screening ultrasound. So how does a woman know what her lifetime risk is? Like when you say they need to be more than 20% lifetime risk, how do you figure that out? Well, there are various ways of determining that. Um, there are computer uh, modules uh, on the Internet where you can plug in your history, uh, various history um, uh, and personal information that will give you um, uh, your lifetime risk. There are also certain groups of women who are very high risk. Any woman who is a known uh, BRCA gene carrier is uh, by definition high risk. Uh, any woman with uh, more than two first degree relatives with breast cancer or a first degree relative with a premenopausal uh, history of breast cancer uh, would qualify as being high risk. There are also some familial uh, 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 genetic uh, diseases uh, that can increase one's risk as well. So, okay, so let's suppose you, uh, you go and you have dense breasts. Does does it, it just affect how easy it is for you to find these cancers that you need this additional screening? And, and right now, there's actually newer forms of mammography that might help to find other cancers too, right? This 3D mammography. Right. Well, that's new technology. The tomosynthesis or 3D uh, mammogram is uh, um, revolutionizing, I believe, breast imaging. Um, it's 
with tomosynthesis, multiple slices are uh, multiple images of slices are taken through the breast, and it allows us to see cancers better because there's less tissue overlap uh, due to the surrounding dense uh, breast tissue. So with tomosynthesis, not only can we increase our cancer detection rate, but we can also decrease the number of false positives. So could you ever do a tomosynthesis instead of an ultrasound if it helps to slice through that dense breast tissue? You can, and I think we don't we don't really know what the best screening protocol is. We have this new technology with improved ultrasound and tomosynthesis, and both of them can enhance the cancer detection rate in addition to conventional 2D mammography alone. Um, tomosynthesis can increase the cancer detection rate by about two per thousand. Um, ultrasound increases it by three per thousand. Some of the cancers seen on tomosynthesis are not seen on ultrasound. Some of the cancers seen on ultrasound are not seen on tomosynthesis. Um, so we don't know which is better. You, either one will increase your cancer detection rate. Here in Connecticut, we often do both tomosynthesis and ultrasound in our patients. Again, due to the breast density notification law, it doesn't specify uh, tomosynthesis as a screening option. So all women who undergo mammography, and in our practice, all of our patients have tomosynthesis, also get breast notification and the option for screening ultrasound. So. You know, Regina, when we started, you had mentioned that all women over the age of 40 should get a a screening mammogram. And I know that that's been controversial uh, with the United States Preventative Services Task Force. And presumably, women who are young in their 40s have dense breasts. So tell us more about why your recommendation is to get a mammogram when you are 40. Well, the United States Protective Services Task Force recommendations are controversial, and um, the American College of Radiology, the American Cancer Society, and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists still recommend screening women every year beginning at age 40. So breast cancer in women under the age of 50 is important. About 25% of all breast cancers occur in women under the age of 50, and uh, These cancers um, account for about uh, one-sixth of all of cancer deaths. And so it's important, not only that, but also because these women are young and there are more uh, years of life lost in these women. About 50% of years of life lost due to breast cancer occur in women under the age of 50. Moreover, the breast cancers in women under the age of 50 tend to be more aggressive. They grow faster. So we should be screening them every year um, beginning at age 50. And studies have shown that with screening mammography, there's a 15% reduction in mortality. Yeah, so all great points uh, to really get screened early. You know, some women may be concerned about the radiation exposure with uh, mammography and how that builds up over time. Can you speak to that and and how much radiation a mammogram actually has and how much radiation, say, tomosynthesis has and how much radiation an MRI has? Sure. Uh, Mammography does uh, require low-dose ionizing radiation. But the dose is very low, and it's thought to be uh, not much higher than the natural background radiation that we all experience. Uh, We have to keep in mind that uh, when we fly, we get a little extra radiation as opposed to when we are, you know, 
uh, on the beach at sea level. Um, and those uh, people who live in the mountains get more radiation than those, again, who live uh, at sea level. So there's a certain amount of natural background radiation that we accept. And having a mammogram is not, not much higher than, you know, normal background radiation. With tomosynthesis, the dose, uh, uh, the radiation dose does double. Um, in addition to that, when we have it in addition to the mammogram. But again, the dose is uh, considered to be quite low, and the risk of having a radiation induced cancer due to mammography is uh, uh, pretty negligible. And what about, so with ultrasound, there's no radiation, right? That's correct. Uh, ultrasound doesn't require any radiation, so it's very, very safe and very well tolerated by patients, and um, that's why it. In some respects, it's a very good screening tool. Um, MRI, on the other hand, does not require radiation, but it does require an intravenous contrast injection. And so it, it's a little bit more, like I mentioned earlier, invasive. So a lot of women, you know, when they come for their mammograms, they really don't love having their breasts squished in the little machine, Regina. So what about ultrasound? If it's a great screening tool and if it can pick up cancers, especially in women with dense breasts, do these women really need a mammogram? Can they just get an ultrasound instead? That's a very good question, Anise. And, um, it is possible, it's conceivably possible that we could use ultrasound instead of mammography. Certainly ultrasound will detect uh, invasive cancers, which we you know, want to find. Uh, the only problem is, is ultrasound is not as good at picking up uh, calcifications. Sometimes microcalcifications uh, can be an early sign of breast cancer, and so uh, uh, mammography is excellent in that regard. So they're really complementary to each other. Moreover, there have been no randomized controlled trials to show the benefit of screening ultrasound. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about screening for women with dense breasts with my guest, Dr. Regina Hooley. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 1,500 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Connecticut alone this year. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the one at Yale and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve the management of the disease by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in a more patient-specific treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Regina Hooley. We're talking about screening for women who have dense breasts. So, Regina, we talked a little bit about breast density and the fact that some women just have dense breasts and sometimes this gets less over time. And it may be related to hormonal cycles, um, or at least the amount of circulating estrogen. And we know that that is in part related to breast cancers. So does breast density increase your risk for actually getting cancer on top of simply making it more difficult for you to find? 
Yes, uh, breast density is known to be an independent risk factor for breast cancer. Um, when you compare women with extremely dense breast tissue to those women with fatty uh, breast tissue, there is a four to six times increased risk for developing cancer. Also, because the mammograms are harder to read, women with dense breasts have a higher rate of having an interval cancer, that is to say a cancer that presents in between uh, the time of having a, the yearly screening mammogram. It presents as a usually a palpable mass. And these interval cancers, which can be detected at a much higher rate, up to 17 times increased uh, uh, rate in women with dense breasts, also tend to be more uh, advanced stage, tend to be larger, and uh, are more aggressive. So those are the, some of the issues that we have with dense breast tissue. So if you have dense breasts, you certainly want to get an ultrasound or, or another test, at least talk to your doctor about what you can do to really make sure that you're finding these cancers early, uh, if you can. So what happens, Regina, if you go for your mammogram and your radiologist says to you, you have dense breasts, we're going to do additional imaging. Can you kind of walk us through um, that process and what happens if they actually find an abnormality? Sure. The first thing to remember is that if you get recalled from a screening mammogram, whether or not you have uh, dense breast tissue or non-dense breast tissue, is not to freak out. Um, the majority of screening recalls uh, turn out to be nothing. About 10% of all women who have a screening mammogram get recalled for an abnormality, but very often these abnormalities are just superimposed tissue or uh, something related to positioning of the breast um, or perhaps a, uh, what turns out to be a normal finding. Um, about one out of 10 women who are recalled require a biopsy. And if we go on to do a biopsy, you need to remember that most of the time the biopsies we do turn out to be benign. Only about 20 to 30% of the biopsies we perform turn out to be breast cancer. So you have to remember that most of the time we're actually wrong when we recommend a, a, a biopsy, but that's the national standard because sometimes we're not sure what the, whether the finding is malignant or not, so it requires a biopsy. If you go ahead and if you go down that route and you need to do you need a biopsy, uh, most of the time the biopsies can be done uh, with a needle, and we do it in the radiology department. Um, it takes about an hour or so to do. We use a local anesthesia like the dentist does, and we use uh, imaging guidance, whether it's ultrasound or uh, X-ray guidance or perhaps MRI guidance. And we just uh, numb up the skin and make a tiny little incision. It doesn't need stitches. And then we sample it, uh, and we're very accurate in our sampling. It takes about three days to get the results. And once we get the results, um, if it turns out to be positive, then we refer the patients to breast surgery for uh, you know, more treatment. Um, what happens if it's negative? I mean, uh, are those patients still at increased risk? I mean, some people, they'll get called back and they'll say, well, we need to see you back in six months. And that really freaks people out because they're thinking, well, if you're worried, do a biopsy and tell me that there's nothing there. And if you're not worried, then how come I can't come back in a year? What do you do about those six-month people? Well, as breast imagers, we're very cautious. And... 
traditionally, when we get a negative biopsy result, we have done six-month follow-up because we always had a little doubt in our mind that perhaps we didn't sample it accurately. Remember that before we did needle biopsies, all the patients, if they had a mammographic abnormality, went to surgery and then we replaced surgery with needle biopsy and it was much less aggressive, so we wanted to be cautious by doing that six-month follow-up. There are new studies that are coming out now that we have you know, 10, 15 years of biopsy experience that for the most part, we probably don't have to do a six-month follow-up for these uh, biopsies that turn out to be benign. But we are all creatures of habit, and it's hard to break that cycle because we also want to be very cautious. So it takes a long time to make to make the radiologist change, and uh, um, but I think I think we're just being overcautious in that regard. And it's better to be cautious than not. Um, the other question that I think a lot of patients have is: oftentimes, when you do a biopsy, you put a little titanium chip in the breast, and many patients wonder, like, why do you do that, and will it set off airport detectors and uh, and that kind of thing? Yeah. We use a little titanium clip. It's really not a chip. It's not electronic. It's like half the size of a staple. And it's really inert. It doesn't set off any metal detectors. And we use that clip to mark our biopsy site. And it's useful for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, if the biopsy comes back positive, then we know exactly where we were. And sometimes we remove most of the lesion with our needle, especially these small cancers. And so if the clip is there, then the surgeon can accurately go where and do the definitive surgery in the region of concern and be very accurate. It also marks uh, the biopsy if it, and it's helpful if it's benign, it marks the biopsy site. So say a patient uh, moves to another state or goes to another radiology facility down the line and they may not have all of their prior medical records, well, that biopsy clip is there and so everyone will know Uh, when they do the breast imaging exam, that that little nodule uh, was already biopsied and not to be be concerned about it. Keep in mind that, you know, when when you have standard general surgery, say you have a gallbladder removed or your appendix removed, surgeons typically leave multiple staples uh, in the body, and they really historically don't tell the patients. It's just part of the surgery. So we've been using these clips and staples for many, many years, and they're safe. So the other question that people have with regards to these clips is sometimes people will say that the radiologist told them that the clip moved. So if the clip moves, it makes it a little bit more challenging for us to uh, go back and biopsy a small site that perhaps uh, turned out to be positive and um, uh, uh, we can't see, you know, the original lesion or the original mass anymore. It's challenging, but there's usually ways of getting around it and, and working things out. But yeah, like all things in life, some things aren't perfect, and sometimes the cliffs move. Uh, yeah. So again, this is the don't freak out message. Yes. Yes. I see. So you know, right now we've talked a little bit about a few different modalities for for breast imaging. We've talked about standard mammography, which it sounds like is really being replaced by tomosynthesis, this 3D mammography. We've talked a little bit about ultrasound and a little bit about MRI. What's the future for breast imaging? What do you say about people who say, what about thermal imaging or, you know, all of these molecular imaging techniques? Is there a future to that? Are we always going to have mammography? 
Well, that's a good, another good question, Anise. Uh, mammography, again, is the gold standard. And I think with uh, tomosynthesis, we're getting better. There are, there's growing interest in contrast-enhanced mammography, where um, a contrast similar to a CT or CAT scan contrast is injected into the breast. And it can be very accurate, similar to MRI. And the advantage of that is that the contrast-enhanced mammogram can be done at the same time as the regular mammogram all in one appointment as opposed to having a mammogram and having to come back at a different time perhaps and and going to a different room, a different uh, uh, imaging suite to have the MRI. So that's something that there's growing interest. Um, with ultrasound, there's also contrast-enhanced ultrasound that's gaining popularity. A uh, little with ultrasound contrast are micro bubbles, they're air bubbles that can be injected. Um, intravenously and can show uh, 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 tumors to enhance, similar to MRI. So there's growing interest in, in microbubble contrast agents with ultrasound. Um, MRI, there is diffusion-weighted MRI, which perhaps could someday um, eliminate the need for intravenous gadolinium contrast, which we use for MRI. So that's also a, an attractive tool. Technology moves very quickly, and there are a lot of technology advances. Uh, as you mentioned, there's thermography, which is attractive because it doesn't require breast compression or any intravenous contrast, and it measures the temperature of the breast, and uh, the theory being that cancers are warmer. Now, having said that, um, we don't believe that thermography is accurate. The Society of Breast Imaging and the American College of Radiology have looked at studies. And although it's a comfortable exam for patients, the accuracy in detecting uh, small early breast cancers has not been well proven. So I would um, uh, hesitate to recommend uh, uh, patients undergo thermography, especially in addition to the mammogram. So yeah, there's a lot of technology. It moves very quickly. It takes us a long time to get the right answers. Science, I think, uh, uh, medical science in some ways doesn't move as fast as technology moves and um, there are a lot of exciting things down the line and it's it's hard to say which is going to come out uh, on top to be the best exam. You know the micro bubble contrast agent when you talked about with ultrasound might be concerning to some patients who say you're going to put bubbles of air into my venous system isn't that how people get like air emboli that causes strokes and things are you afraid of that? You know, that is an issue, and that's why it's taken a long time for the FDA to approve it. It is FDA approved for cardiac, for echocardiograms here. Um, in Europe and uh, Asia, they've been using microbubble contrast agents for many years uh, safely, even in the pediatric population. These are very tiny, tiny microbubbles. They are um, associated with a little sort of fatty substance to make them slippery, and they don't last that long. So... Um, I think the adverse side effect, which is significant if you, you know, having a stroke is a significant adverse side effect, has, is, is very, very minimal, and it's believed to be safe. So it's just a matter of time. Uh, we hope that the FDA will approve it for use in addition uh, to cardiac uh, echo. What about um, elastography? A lot of people have been talking about that as a new technique in ultrasound. Tell us more about that. 
Elastography is uh, a measure of tissue stiffness. It's a high-tech uh, measurement of uh, uh, of how dense or, or how firm a lesion is. It's a high-tech replacement for a physical exam. We know on physical exam that cancers tend to feel very hard and benign or non-cancerous masses are soft. So elastography can measure tissue stiffness. Early studies have shown that it can improve the accuracy of ultrasound, um, but it is um, uh, difficult to do. It takes a lot of experience to do it right. And I think it's really early in its um, uh, development, and I think it has a lot of promise, but we're not quite there yet. What about PEM? So a lot of people talk about PET scans, which mm-hmm. is positron emission scans. Um, and now there's something called positron emission mammography. Do you think that that's going to be the new mammography of the future? I don't think so at this point. Um, with PEM, there is a high radiation dose. It's much higher than mammography. And they've been trying to bring down the radiation dose over time. But remember, if you're doing a PET scan in a patient who is very sick or has a, hist- a known cancer, then it's worth that single exposure. But to do PEM in uh, a screening in women who are otherwise healthy with that high radiation dose is, is uh, probably not safe. Dr. Regina Hooley is Associate Professor of Diagnostic Radiology at the Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.